Today's scripture reading is going to be on uh, 1 Timothy, first, first Timothy 1, 3 through 11. It's on page 991 of your pew Bible. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to, my, to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, In this time of thanksgiving, we come before you to thank you for your law, which is perfect. It perfectly shows us us our sin, and in our sin, our need for your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and his perfect sacrifice for us, Father. Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the community that, that is around this church. We thank you for the country we live in and the opportunity that we have every day to share your gospel freely without persecution. Father, we, we thank you for the, the time of rest that you've given our pastor and his wife. We pray that they may come back to us refreshed. We pray that you be with him today as he delivers the sermon on this, this scripture passions, Father. Father, we thank you for all this, and we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. The improper use of tools. I remember growing up learning that some scissors are not for cutting construction paper. My mother enjoyed quilting and sewing, and I found out quickly that those scissors are not made for my craft projects. If you're a woodworker, you'll probably... Uh, faint when you see someone take a sharp chisel out of the box and use it as a screwdriver. Or maybe the little boy who sees a hole that needs to be dug and the axe that does a good job of digging that hole instead of cutting down the tree. Or maybe it's the paintbrush, that expensive paintbrush that was bought for the canvas that the child determines is good for painting the house as well. There are tools that we have in our lives. And these tools, if to be effective, are to be used 
properly. In fact, Paul here says that the problem lies not with the tool, but actually with the one using the tool improperly. In fact, he, he uses the tool, the tool he is using and instructing us on here is the tool of the law. To be effective, he tells these people, the people he's writing to, the church that Ephesus, that Timothy is pastoring, to be effective, he says, the law must be used properly. In fact, he would be arguing for us this morning that the law and the gospel, the law and the gospel is that which displays God's glory as central in all things and is therefore good for the Christian. Now, at a cursory glance, that may not come through, so we'll spend our next few moments looking at this. How is the law good? And how is it to be used lawfully? How do we use the law in a way that accomplishes its intended purpose? And what are ways that the law is misused? And therefore, not designed to be used in such a way and actually is not effective at all can do damage. If you're looking at your Bible this morning, we're going to take uh, basically all the passage in one section, 8 through 11 there. I had Warren read 3 through 11 to give us some understanding of context if you were not here a couple weeks ago. But 8 through 11 is what we'll be looking at. And I've I've got three or four points. We're going to look at the, the law for the sinner, the law for the saint, And finally, we'll conclude with the law and the gospel. The law for the sinner, the law for the saint, and the law and the gospel. Well, what is clear right from the get-go here is that the law is good for the sinner. Paul makes that clear. He says in verse 8, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for, and then he gives us this list. The question might be, what law is he speaking about? And I think it's clear that he is writing probably to those who are well acquainted with the Jewish law. Therefore, we can probably presume that he's speaking of the Mosaic law. In fact, in verse 6 and 7, you'll notice that these certain people desiring to be teachers of the law, the law they would have known would have been the Mosaic law, they are uh, wandering away into vain discussion. In fact, they're speaking with myths and devoting themselves to myths and genealogies. And in fact, what they're doing is they're, they're waxing philosophical on the law. They're going into the, the public temple in Ephesus there. And they're expounding upon things they're really not quite clear about. But they like the way they sound. They're not being clear with the application and use of the law. They're incorporating their own speculation as to how it should be applied. They're intertwining the the law of Moses with other theories from other belief systems. They're clouding the clear purpose of the law by their theorizing. They're using highbrow arguments. They're using highfalutin words, if you want to put it that way. To make it very difficult for the common person to understand. They're doing so to allow licentiousness, loose views of the law when convenient. And then even speculating on how they might be able to tighten the law 
when it's convenient for them. A false teacher uses the law improperly for their own good. How can I twist things for my own my own good? So right away we should clearly understand a good application of this right out of the gate is that the word of God should be taught clearly. It should not be confusing at all. Part of the battle uh, during the Protestant Reformation and even still today is that the word should be for the people. From the farmer in the field to the professor at the blackboard to the doctor at his surgery, the word should be taught clearly and in the language of the people and understood by the people. And here these false teachers are, are given to myths and genealogies, given to confusing arguments. The word is for the people, not just to puff up the teacher as these false teachers were doing that Paul is writing about. This was some sort of mystical, authoritative stick that these false teachers were using to abuse people in whatever way they wanted. And when we're speaking of the Mosaic Law, we're specifically speaking of probably Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments. How do we know that? Well, if you take a look at the list of sins that Paul describes here, starting in verse 9 all the way through the verse 10, you can see that they mirror closely with the Ten Commandments. Start with sort of halfway down the middle, with those who strike their fathers and mothers. That should ring the fifth commandment, obey your father, honor your father and mother. Well, keep going. Murders, that's the sixth commandment. Sexually immoral and homosexual men. That's the seventh commandment. Liars, perjurers, enslavers. You can hear uh, shades of the eighth and ninth commandment. Enslavers meaning those who steal people. Kidnapping people. Eighth commandment. Ninth, do not bear false witness. Liars and perjurers. In fact, then if you backtrack into lawless, disobedient, ungodly sinners, unholy, profane, you can hear shades of the first four commandments. We're to keep the Sabbath holy. There's the unholy and profane part. There's the, the lawless and disobedient, and we're to be those who are worshiping God alone and not idols. So Paul here is really mirroring the Ten Commandments by making practical application of how these people were denying the law and the application when they were denying the law and how it was uh, presenting itself as sin. We have to realize that the law and keeping the law has always been hated by the sinner. For 6,000 years, we have bred rebels who desire to only rebel against the law of God. You see, the law of God is that which declares the authority of God. And so it's no wonder that the Ten Commandments are even still today hated by unbelievers and we're seeking to destroy them. How can we remove the Ten Commandments? That's what we want to do all the time. Why? Because when I walk by the Ten Commandments, I'm confronted with my guilt before a holy God. So of course I would want to remove them. But it's very hard to remove something that God has stated and wrote with his finger on a tablet of stone. The law was given to deal with sin. 
The law was given not only to deal with sin, but to also reveal the contrasting character of Almighty God. And we see that in the person and work of Christ. So when we hear, do not commit adultery, we see Christ always being faithful to us. When we hear, do not lie, we look in the scriptures and see that God never lies and his word is always true. We hear, honor your father and mother, and we see Christ in the garden saying, not my will, but thine be done. Over and over and over again, we see the perfection and character of God in the law. So that when one reads the law, it not only exposes our sinful hearts, but in contrast, the perfection and holiness of God from whom the law comes. In fact, the law is a a great means of grace. The law for the sinner is what reveals our sin. Everyone in here today who has believed, put their faith and trust on the person and work of Christ, recognized their need for Christ because of the law. You didn't walk in to church or you didn't hear a preacher or someone gave you the gospel and you didn't think, well, that sounds pretty good. I think I'll add it to whatever else I'm doing. I don't really need that, but I'll tack that on as an insurance policy. No, the true believer in Jesus Christ came into the, came against the brick wall of sin, excuse me, of the law, and that brick wall said, you shall not pass. You can't get over this. This condemns you. You are a liar. You are an adulterer. You are a murderer. You are a thief. You are a rebel. And the law tells us that. And it says you need Christ. Who kept the law perfectly. To free you from the guilt of the law. The law is that which exposed our condemned position as sinners before a holy God. It was the law that declared us guilty before a perfect God. The law is a grace for the sinner. Galatians 3. 19, I won't read all of that, but today I would encourage you, take your Bible, read Romans 7, Romans 10, Galatians 3. It expounds upon the law. Galatians 3, 19, Paul writing, why then the law? Question mark. It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of sin until the offspring, meaning Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imposed everything under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before the faith came, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. So then the law was our schoolmaster. It instructed us. It constrained us. It taught us until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law is that which restrains the sinner. That's one of the reasons why you have the the laws of Fredericksburg, the laws of the state of Texas, the laws of the United States, is it constrains the sinner, but it also points out their imperfection, points them to Christ. And this law is, is not a hammer. 
It, it, we oftentimes, I think, think of the law as something that comes from the wrath side of God. He just wants to crush us. And the law does condemn us and his wrath will crush the sinner on that day of judgment. However, the law is actually coming from the hand of love. Deuteronomy 33, 2-3. Moses, as he's finishing off his life, says this. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. Speaking of the giving of the law and the on the mount. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousand of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. The love of God is that which drew him and pushed him to giving law. He did not leave us on our own. And therefore the law for the sinner is good news. I mean, if you're a person who is one of these listed, and notice he, he doesn't just end with, and that's the list, and there's no other people. He ends with, and whatever else. As if to say, let me give you a, a good top ten, and whatever else falls underneath that. But if I'm, a, if I'm one who today struggles with homosexuality, this is good news for me. Because what this says is, I'm condemned because of my sin and I can't work my way out of it. That I need Christ. It points me in the right direction. If there's no law, then maybe I can work my way out. Maybe I can stop doing one thing and start doing another. But it doesn't give me any hope. Because it plays all the hope upon me somehow getting it right. The law says, there's no hope in you. The hope is in Christ alone. It crushes any hope of salvation within oneself. And so we should be those who use the law for the sinner. Lovingly. I read this morning in our uh, pardoning, assurance of pardoning grace from 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11, That says clearly. If you in your unrepentance. Will continue with being disobedient. Unholy, striking your father and mother, murderers, sexually immoral, practicing homosexuality, and slavers like, if you will consistently pursue that and not repent, the kingdom of heaven is not for you. And you will perish under the wrath of God. It is clear. So what it's saying is, stop. And we should be those who are using the law as a means of grace for the sinner to say, if you do this, this is what scripture says, the kingdom of heaven is not for you. And so therefore come to Christ and repent and have all your sin, past, present, future, including if you're one of these. That's the way 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 ends. And such were some of you. You can have this washed away. Should be our rallying cry for the unbeliever. The law is good for the sinner. That's clear in this passage of 1 Timothy. But what may not be as clear is that the law is good for the saint. This is point number two. What about the law for us as Christians? Is this just a passage that is purely evangelical in the sense that uh, I'm to preach it only to the unbeliever and there's no meat here for you as a Christian? What do we do with it? 
Because at first glance, it almost seems as if Paul is saying, the proper use of the law, look with me there, verse 8 and 9, the proper use of the law is for that list. And it's almost as if you could say, the improper use of the law is for the just or the righteous. But I think, if we'll look a little deeper, that's not what he's saying. If the law restrains the sinner and points them to Christ, what does it do for the Christian saved? Paul even says here that the law is not laid down for the Christian. So what's in it for us? We realize, brothers and sisters, that the law is not to establish the just. The law does not establish the righteous. The law does not make perfect the sinner. Only Christ can establish the just. Only Christ can perfect us in right standing before God. But does that mean that the law is not good for the Christian? That it's no longer relevant for the Christian today? And I think scripture says otherwise. For instance... In Matthew 5, 17 through 19, we learn that Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He says, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, one stroke or one pronunciation mark shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Paul is declaring that the law is for the sinner of which we all are. And the only ones who don't think they're sinners are these false teachers. That think themselves righteous. For instance, Christ says in Luke 5.32, He came not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Meaning that there are those who think themselves above the law, and they don't need Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. It's as if he's almost a play in word, tongue in cheek. The law is laid down for the just. And who are those? No one. But those who have been justified by Christ. And in fact those who have been justified by Christ. Recognize that they are still in need of Christ. And still continue to sin. And thus need the law to remind them of the beauty of Christ for them. See Paul's argument here? It's the Christian. Who recognizes his sin that finds the law a great delight. It's the prideful Christian who does not recognize his sin that did not need the law in his own mind. It's as if Paul is saying, preaching is good if one knows how to preach and is called to preach. And preaching is bad if one doesn't know how to preach or is not called to preach. And he's saying the teaching of the law is good If one knows how to teach the law. These guys didn't. They were abusing it. Mark 7. He even talks about these same men. Christ talks about them abusing the law. And twisting it to conform to their own standards. So how does the law help? How is the law good for the Christian today? For us in the pew. Relevant for tomorrow and for this afternoon. A.W. Pink I think helps us. This is his quote. 
quote, the supreme test of love is the desire and effort to please the one loved and this measured by conformity to his known wishes. Let me say it one more time. Quote, the supreme test of love is the desire and effort to please the one loved and this measured by conformity to his known wishes. Close quote. Now, the greatest example is Christ in the garden. Exemplifying this perfectly. The supreme test of the love of Christ is the desire and effort to please the Father. And this was measured by his willingness to say, not my will, but yours. To conform to the known wishes of the Father. And so then we see as the Christian, John 14, 21. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. Or 1 John 5, 2, 3. But by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. or His commandments are not burdensome. Let me put it this way then. A Christian walking in a loving relationship with God does not need to be corrected with the law because he will, by his very nature and loving relationship with God, be keeping the law. Or, the Christian walking in unrepentant sin needs the gospel brought to bear on his soul in a manner that shows clearly that his life is out of conformity with loving God because he's not keeping the law. He's not keeping the commandments of God. Romans 7, 7 and 12. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Of course not. In fact, Sin I would not have recognized except through the law. For instance, covetousness I would not have known had the law not said, you shall not covet. Accordingly, accordingly, the law, if holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Pink again. Quote, the waning of love then means departing from failing to keep God's commandments. Now, we have to be clear here. We're not speaking of justification. We're not speaking of how we come into right relationship with God. That is through Christ alone. By faith alone. Through grace alone. That's it. What we are speaking of is sanctification. And in sanctification, what a grace is the law. So where's a good place to start with and how we should... And what law we should be keeping. Well, well, Matthew is a great place to start. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go to Exodus. Look at the Ten Commandments. That's a great place to start. Don't steal. Don't steal time from your employer. Don't steal a pencil from the cabinet. Don't steal the candy bar from the convenience store. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery with your eyes, mentally, or physically. It's a great place to start to know how to live one's life in a way that is honoring to God. We're speaking of sanctification, but oh, how the law is good for the Christian. But what about point number three here? It's kind of closed, but tighten the bow on this. The law and the gospel. Point number three, the law and the gospel. You might have heard the phrase, and if not, you will hear it at some point. That was that sermon was more law and less gospel. 
or there was that was law and gospel or that was more gospel and less law meaning that there is a divide between the law and the gospel but the question has to be asked what does one mean when they say the word law because if we're not careful we're going to fall into the same trap as many do and be anti-law meaning I'm a gospel person I'm not a law person well is that what the bible says because we just read in 1 John and we read in John 14 that the Bible says that gospel people are law people. And yet we also recognize that there's a bit of a difference there. So how do these two things coexist? First of all, if you mean the ceremonial laws of the sacrificial system, then yes, the law is different from the gospel. If you mean that one can keep the law well enough to earn their way to heaven, then yes, the law is different from the gospel. And many today get the heebie-jeebies when we think of obedience to the law in the same sentence as the gospel. And in many ways, that's good too. Get the kind of the weird feeling of, whoa, when we start speaking of obeying the law and the gospel because our hearts are all prone to look away from the work of Christ and to ourselves. And so when we combine those two, we should get some weird feelings. But we have to recognize that the Bible never gets the heebie-jeebies on these things. They see them as coexisting. It has no problem. The Bible has no problem declaring to the saved to obey the commandments. And when we say the law, when we say the commandments, we do not mean the law of Moses, but we mean the law of God. The law of Moses, and maybe you could put them under uh, the, the topic of ceremonial laws or purification laws or even some of the symbol laws were for the nation of Israel. But the law of God, the moral law, is for all men everywhere. The law shows me my need for the gospel and as a Christian reminds me of the glorious grace of the gospel. Because when I walk to church on a Sunday morning, Speaking of myself, of course. Oftentimes, I'm reminded of my inadequacy because of my sin to be the pastor of this church. But the gospel reminds me of the fact that he has saved me from having to be perfect. And yet the law also serves to confront me in my sin And that repentance from that sin is in accordance with the gospel. So the law says, Cody, don't do this. And the gospel says that repenting of that is in accordance with the gospel. That's part of walking out the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, the law and the gospel tell me that if one will not repent, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, the law and the gospel Together say the fruit of the Christian is to repent. Richard Baxter says to repent is the way to peace. So the law and the gospel together say if you want peace, not speaking justification, peace with God now in sanctification, repent of your sin. Don't let it reign supreme as Paul tells us. The law is rightly used. What's the right way to use? The law is used rightly when used as a guide to warn against sin. 
The law serves us well as a warning sign instructing us to change course. The law serves us well to declare the perfect character of God as seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The law was never intended to be a means of salvation. The law was not intended to be twisted and conformed to our wishful fantasies. The law of God is a means of grace. When the Christian is walking before God, a right by the grace of God, walking out a love relationship with Almighty God, the Christian should be able to look into Scripture and his actions resonate with the law of God. The way of the Christian is loving God will be evidenced and conformed and even an encouragement to the Christian in the law of God. And so when you fight against that lust, men and or women, and then you read in your Bible the next morning, do not commit adultery. It should resonate in your heart. Oh, thank God for Christ that has given me a desire to fight that lust. The law taught properly will concur with the gospel. Sound doctrine is that which displays God's glory as central in all things. Sound doctrine is that which displays God's glory as central in all things. That's the verse 11 here. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And the law and the gospel taught properly go hand in hand. They keep the glory of God as central in all things. One points us to Christ, the law. The other saves us in Christ, the gospel. One helps keep us in Christ, the law. The other empowers us to love him more, the gospel. Hand in hand, dovetailed together. Sound doctrine produces sound living. False doctrine produces unsound living. Meaning, doctrine is good and it should change us. It should conform us. And if it's conforming us to unsound living, Paul's warning Timothy here, Paul's warning us, go back to the teacher and determine whether or not the doctrine is sound. Because the evidence of their unsound teaching of the law was being declared in their unsound living. An improper use of the law is a dividing of the law from the gospel to the point that the law is either no longer relevant, antinomianum, we don't need the law at all, hypergrace, who cares about the law, or overshadows the law, we keep the law so much we don't need the gospel, and restricts our understanding of how one is in right standing before God. That's an improper use of the law. We're either using it to overshadow the gospel, legalism, or we're having so much emphasis on it, legalism, or we're, we're looking at it in such a way that we say we don't even need it anymore. Both of those are wrong uses of the law. Obedience to the law, the Bible teaches clearly, should not weaken our understanding of loving God. God makes it abundantly clear in his word that his view, he views our love as love only when we are keeping his commandments. So you can come to church. You can get up in the morning. You can open your Bible. 
And you can get feelings, you can get impressions, you can get the tingles, you can get the the joys. You can feel the love of God and all of it be false if you're not keeping his commandments. Because that's the only way he views your love as actually love, is if you're living in obedience to him. doesn't matter what you're feeling. And yet, the Bible also teaches that as we pursue obedience out of a love relationship with God, oh, the joy, oh, the peace that passes all understanding, oh, the delight that supersedes any circumstances, oh, the ability to to weep even in the midst of suffering, to have joy even in the midst of sorrow, all that comes in a loving relationship with God that is manifested in obedience. Paul is warning Timothy that these teachers were not using the law correctly. That's Paul's beef with the false teachers. They're not in outright opposition to the gospel. And yet by their lack of knowledge of the gospel and combined with their puffed up desire to be seen as a teacher, to be seen as someone special, they were improperly teaching how to use the law. They were restricting people from doing things they were proper and lawful to do. And they were expanding on the law more than its intended nature. And yet the heart of the Christian looks in the word of God and rejoices and affirms Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. It, it, it affirms the, the heart of Christ seen in Psalm 1 who delights in the law of God, meditates on it day and night. So what commandments of God are we playing fast and loose with? As a church? As individuals? What idols have you enshrined in your heart that need to be cast down, that you're not allowing the word of God, the command of God, to confront? Do your priorities today and tomorrow confirm the priorities of Scripture? Are there commandments that you have relegated to? That's not really all that big of a deal, pile. Christ affirmed earlier in our time together in the Word that if we just, if even if we're just teachers that say, yeah, that one's, we don't really need to teach on that one. That one's a small one. He warns against that. Is there sin that you fear if confessed? You will not confess it due to your fear of man. Brothers and sisters, we should be those who are continually looking to Christ. Who kept the law perfectly for you. That is what gives us the grace to repent of our sin. We are to be those who, to look to Christ who never leaves us and never forsakes us. We are to be those who look to Christ who has bought the righteousness for us needed to enter the gates of heaven. We are to look to Christ who did not consider himself but went to the cross for us. We are to look to Christ as an example of obedience to the Father. We are to look and learn from Christ. To love our Heavenly Father enough to obey him as Christ did. And what happens when that happens is the the paradox of the Christian faith. When we submit to the authority of God's word which is what we always are wanting to rebel. When we submit, that is when we gain the peace of God that will rule and reign in our hearts, a peace that passes all understanding. 
So will we repent enough? Will we conform our lives to that? And I trust that by His grace, because of the work in Christ, of Christ in our hearts already as a believer, that that will ring as something that is true and delightful and provide the grace to continue to walk in a loving relationship with Him. And if you're here today and you find that that doesn't ring true, that the law might come as a weight and bear upon you the realization that you will have to answer before this holy God. And yet by His mercy and grace, He holds back His hand of wrath now in patience, out of love that you might repent and turn to Him in saving grace. Oh, let's continue to praise Him in just a moment for the cross of Christ. But before we do, let's close in prayer, thanking Him for the law and His grace to obey Him each and every day. Father in heaven, we thank You for Christ who obeyed the law perfectly because we certainly cannot. We never have been able to. We never will be able to. And yet our right standing before You is by the perfection of Christ. But Father, we as weak and helpless sinners who see Christ and His work for us and the love that You have for us, oh, Father, what a joy it is to be in loving and right relationship with You. And Father, we want to we want to show the world and, and we want to honor you and we want to we want to show our love to you by being like you. Never never fully but little by little more and more. Oh Father, give us grace this week to to see the grace of the law that we would use it well with the unbeliever and use it well with the believer for our own hearts and for our brother and sister next to us that if if needed to the unrepentant we would we would call their soul to recognize the work of Christ for them and because of the work of Christ the the shift and the change that has been wrought in them to be able to live and walk in a way that is pleasing to you, not by our actions, but by the merit of Christ. Help us to be those who are encouraging one another as we see one another obeying you. To encourage one another in the fight against sin. We wouldn't fight. We wouldn't care. But that you loved us first. Father, we thank you for the cross. Oh, Father, hallelujah for the cross. Where the victory was won for us. We're rebels, lawbreakers. The victory was won. The grace was secured that today, this week, we might, even in our feeblest of efforts, follow you in obedience. We ask for more grace. That is all that we have And frankly, it's all that we need. Help us, Father, as we sing, even now as we close our time together, and as we prepare to launch into this week. May we be those with a word of encouragement and truth for our neighbor, our co-worker, our family and friend that is around us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.